Hello, my name is Robin MacDonald. I'm the Head of Chemicals, Polymers and Fibres at Wood Mackenzie. On the 5th and 6th of April this year, we got together with 60 clients in Atlanta at the 10th Annual American Nylon Symposium to spend a day and a half talking about the current state and future of the nylon industry. It's become traditional at these events that at the end I uh, share my personal notes and observations of what I think I've heard over, over the last sort of day and a half and I would like to then share them the same observations with you and for the people who are unable to make it to the event. Normally at our symposia the flow of papers follows the flow of raw materials through the chains. We start with energy, petrochemical raw materials, we move through intermediates into polymers and then we go and explore the applications for nylon. Um, on this particular occasion we had to mix up the program a little bit because of adverse weather and the first paper up was from Alistair Carmichael, who's our president of Fibres in America. Alistair's paper outlined the dominance of polyester in the fibre world, and also the dominance of China in the fibre world, and, and showed clearly that nylon's share of fibres and the total fibre action across the world, and particularly in China, has diminished massively over the last three decades. He also outlined the divergent paths of nylon 6 and 6.6, and a lot of the reason for this divergence is to do with the uh, choices and business strategies of the suppliers rather than the inherent material products and performance. And essentially the nylon 6.6 people had decided that uh, not to support the, the textile industry and not to support its migration um, into the east and to China specifically where nylon 6 did. And as a result of that, nylon 6 has grown much more uh, quickly the nylon 6.6 has. In my mind it raises the question was whether the nylon 6.6 quit the textile business too soon or quit support for the industry too soon and some of the comments from Alistair and the, the carpet industry in North America made me wonder whether they were about to make the same mistake twice. On the matter of carpets, Alistair outlined that housing starts in the US were looking much better for the first time in many years and raised the question whether nylon would actually be in a position to to benefit from this upturn or whether the carpet industry had moved on in terms of its its material selection and whether polyester would be the main beneficiary of this. Alistair also mentioned the reshoring of many investments, fibre related investments in the USA and, and pointed out that foreign companies appear to be much more interested in investing in the USA than many of the domestic companies um, and, and left the open questions to why that was. The next paper was from Tom Busey from Renovia, who are a biotech company based out in California. Um, personally, I'm a great believer in, in what biotech can potentially bring to the nylon world, in that nylon chemistry is typically fairly expensive, fairly complicated, um, and has some environmental challenges. And therefore, if nylon can move to a more sustainable biotech uh, production base in future, it would be to the benefit of all. I was very interested in Tom's paper because Renovia, unlike many other companies, are are starting with a sustainable raw material and then getting to a, a sort of generic target molecule, which they will then use uh, traditional chemical routes to modify into what they're trying to make, whereas most other biotech companies are actually trying to get straight from the raw material to the target molecule. So I think that's an interesting concept from Renovia um, and potentially much faster to market. 
in Tom's paper, he he compared some of the relative economics, and clearly, uh, at oil prices around fifty dollars, it's going to be much more of a stretch for biotech than it was when crude prices were at a hundred. And he also outlined that in Renovia's view, there would be no um, premium for having a sustainable sourced chemical intermediates. And as far as they were concerned, they had to be equivalent both in terms of performance and price to be able to make it to work. I thought that was very wise and fairly refreshing. He also outlined the challenge of mass loss during the biotech process where you lose a fair chunk of your raw material which you've paid for um, when trying to get to your product and that makes the economics of biotech more difficult. Again, although this is this is relatively well known, uh, I think it was the first time that a biotech company had actually been honest and, and sort of come out and, and explained that to all. Renovia are targeting uh, high fructose syrup as the main raw material for their nylon intermediate synthesis. And that was, that was again, very interesting um, in that high fructose syrup was already a very large um, output material at good quality with good sources of distribution. Uh, it's mainly used as a sweetener in synthetic um, pop and the lemonade and coke and so on. Um, and the market for this product is actually is actually falling. So it looks like biotech is able to access a good raw material, um, which is already in production, although demand is dropping, which potentially again uh, makes the commercialization of this technology easier. So I, I, all in all, I was very, uh, very interested in what Renovia had to say and, and found it a very positive paper. The next paper was from myself, um, looking at the nylon intermediates and polymers market in the USA. Traditionally, the USA has been a very, very large exporter of nylon intermediates and polymers, and um, that has changed now in the nylon six world following the shutdown of Fibrance Caprolactam facility in Augusta uh, last year. So the nylon six market in the USA has now become balanced, and as a result, prices have increased. Uh, margins and profitability have increased for the suppliers to get to a sustainable level and customers are sort of struggling to deal with with slightly higher prices. In the case of Nylon 66, um, the fundamentals of the market in the USA locally remain very weak, i.e. there is massive oversupply. But given that the USA is the, the main supply source for Nylon 66 uh, raw materials and for polymers for the rest of the world, uh, in reality, the market's much more balanced than it looks, and therefore recent price increases are probably uh, defendable and probably sustainable. I outlined a scenario where growth for now on demand within the USA was probably sub-GDP, which may be somewhat disappointing, but my expectation is also that that demand will be more stable and less volatile than it has been for the last 20 years, where there have been massive swings in demand uh, related to the carpet industry and the staple fibre industry, mainly related to carpeting as well. Uh, at the same time, there's been extensive growth in Nylon 6.6 demand, particularly uh, for automotive. And we see a future which is which is slower in terms of growth uh, overall, but, uh, but a lot less volatile than it has been. There's also some clouds on the horizon around the, the adiponitrile supply in that... Um, Having reassessed the supply-demand balance recently, we, we've come to the conclusion that a diponitrile supply is a lot tighter than we previously thought. This leads to two potential futures for nylon 6.6, which is based on a diponitrile. One of which is that investments will now happen and that 6.6 will continue to be 
a kind of growth product uh, and we expect those investments to happen in Asia or the investments will not happen uh, which is quite possible because very few people have access to this technology in which case the supply of 6.6 will be relatively static and as demand grows for it there'll be sort of mix enrichment that goes on as prices increase and uh, the product base turns over. For the last four or five years the power in the nylon chains has been very much with the downstream because of oversupply at intermediates and polymer levels. We see a future now where the power starts to move back to the upstream uh, which means that the downstream buyers will have to get used to um, uh, higher prices and higher margins from their suppliers. The fourth paper came from Ryan Macaluso who's a director for um, aromatics at Woodmac based in Houston and he was really talking about the first paper energy and olefins. He noted that crude oil prices were moving back up and expected 2018 to be on average around $50 per barrel. While short-term prediction of oil prices is generally a mugs game, one of the interesting things that Ryan pointed out was that by 2020 there would be about 8 million barrel per day gap between current sources of supply and predicted demand and that the only way to fill that gap is to bring on new sources of crude oil, uh, most of which had a break-even price somewhat closer to $80 per barrel. That suggested to me that the prices for oil are going to go back up over the next couple of years, although uh, very difficult to predict exactly when those changes would happen. Ryan also talked about natural gas and expected that for the next 30 years or so, the USA would see natural gas prices below $5 per million BTUs. If this is accurate, then it's good for Nylon 6.6, which uses natural gas both as a raw material and as an energy source, and would be bad for Nylon 6, which um, predominantly comes from benzene, which is an oil-based product, as opposed to a gas-based product. And cheap gas would also mean cheap ammonia, which would logically mean cheap nitrogen fertilizers, which again would be bad for the Nylon 6 industry, given that ammonium sulfate, which is a major co-product of caprolactam production is a nitrogen fertilizer. So if correct, Ryan was basically saying that crude oil, naphtha, benzene, aromatics type products are going to be more expensive and gas products were going to be cheaper, which would be to the advantage of 6.6 and the disadvantage of 6. He then talked a little bit about propane, which is now being used as a raw material for on-purpose production of propylene and commented that they, we expect a lot of exports coming out of the USA um, going to, for example, propane dehydrogenation plants in China uh, to feed demand for polypropylene there. And, and with this trade, it effectively put a cap on the um, how low prices could go for propane and therefore propylene in the USA. So even though the US has a massive excess of propane and potentially then propylene, uh, in reality, there's a floor price being set by the export markets. The fifth paper came from Franco Rossi, who's president of Aquafil USA, a significant uh, carpet producer. And he was talking really specifically around sustainability and recycling, which is, which is a habitual subject for the carpet industry. A lot of carpet goes into housing, um, typically has a life of three to five years, depending on type of carpet. And then a lot of it ends up in landfill, which various states in the US are trying to do something about, specifically California. Um, so the question of you know, what happens end of life carpet is, is a recurring theme 
and Franco's view was that that really there were a couple of different options one of which was was the kind of recycling and recovery of product which is done to some extent at the moment and can be justified by developing a brand story around that around sustainability um, which there is some uh, section of the market which is prepared to pay more for such a product however the long-term answer in Franco's view was actually to redesign the way in which carpets are made because at the moment they're they're made of many many different products latex and chalk and polyamide and adhesive and all sorts of things and trying to recycle such a, a sort of mixture of, of indeterminate materials is, is very challenging uh, he raised the question of whether it wouldn't be easier better to produce carpets by design which uh, would be recycled and therefore the materials which are used would be easier to recover. This reminded me actually of a paper which we had at our symposium in Atlanta maybe four or five years prior to this from a company called Claybrick in the Netherlands who had um, produced a nylon carpet that was made entirely out of nylon and, and made me wonder whether the industry was maybe finally getting ready to address such a product. Frank also made the interesting point that, that you know, nylon is much more expensive than polyester, typically twice the price, and therefore nylon carpets were significantly more expensive than polyester. However, when it came to recycling, because of the inherent value in nylon, uh, the economics for recycling were with nylon, and in many cases th there was no economic benefit to recycling polyester, uh, which made me think that there may be an opportunity to, to rethink how we look at economics of carpet right instead of looking at the the initial cost of nylon versus polyester we actually look at the full life and uh, and add some credit to the fact that you'll be able to recover some nylon carpets at the end and benefit from the recycle and i think if we did that that would really affect the the economics um, and demand side of the american carpet industry the sixth paper was the second paper from ryan macaluso um, and he was talking about benzene and butadiene. Both of these products, although significant petrochemical building blocks, are actually co-products stroke byproducts from other processes. And, and they are therefore unusual in that there is no direct link between the supply and demand, which, as you imagine, makes pricing typically fairly volatile. For butadiene, Brian Ryan looked at um, a number of scenarios where demand continues to grow for elastomeric type products. Uh, but there's really no effective way of making butadiene on purpose. Uh, where there is, for example, for propane to propylene, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, there's no equivalent for butadiene, and that therefore sooner or later, uh, as demand continues to grow for butadiene, but the supply remains static to declining, um, it looks like prices are going to go up and butadiene will become um, significantly more expensive. Butadiene is also a very complex product in that... Um, you can't hold inventory it tends to react with itself and turns itself you know turns your tanks into one large rubber ball uh, it's very expensive to ship and there's basically no pre-buying so all in all i was really left with the feeling that, that butadiene was a was a fairly unfortunate choice of a raw material for the nylon industry benzene which is the main raw material for nylon six and the raw material for half of nylon six six is also a kind of co-product and a lot of the new supply which is coming on now is coming from paraxylene converters and reformers which are based out in Asia. Um, this then inherently ties 
the future of the nano industry to the future of the polyester industry in that these uh, assets predominantly are there to make paraxylene, to make polyester, and as a byproduct, they make benzene. So from a from a polyester versus polyamide nylon competitive point of view, that's probably quite fortunate. Um, with a lot of this happening in Asia and America being very, very net short of benzene and having to import it specifically from Asia or from China, um, Ryan outlined the situation where we're benzene prices in the US were likely to become more volatile as the dependency on imports increased. The next paper came from Quentin de Cavallo, he's our director of nylon um, based in Europe and he was talking about the engineering plastics market. He gave a very positive story around the growth for both nylon 6 and 6.6 and spent some part of his paper discussing the competition between integrated producers, i.e. people who make nylon chemicals and polymers and engineering plastics and the independent compounders who simply buy polymer and then turn it into plastic themselves uh, and he outlined the, the 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 issues that are now occurring between these competing supply chains particularly for nylon six where uh, cheap raw materials are increasingly available and making the independent compounders more competitive versus their integrated equivalents Quentin mentioned that engineering plastics margins are surprisingly low, but they're relatively stable compared with other parts the, of the chain. And um, also highlighted the, the difficulties of getting into this business and the high barriers to entry. The final paper came from Peter Wing from DuPont. He looked at the application of nylon intermediates and polymers plastics into cars. Um, he showed some data which suggested that the amount of nylon in a car between 6 and 6, it's kind of swapped over in the early part of this decade with, with 6 becoming the preferred choice. Um, and he also spent a lot of time talking about you know, what DuPont was doing in terms of the advanced productive engineering um, design and support work which it did. So it wasn't really selling you know 50 pound bags of polymer chip, it was actually selling ideas and solutions to problems. It was a very positive uh, short-term story uh, given that number of cars are expected to increase and that the weight of nylon per car is also expected to increase through um, wider use of things like uh, light weighting and turbochargers. He suggested medium term would actually be fairly good for nylon um, because something like electrification would potentially open new opportunities at least to the infrastructure levels um, if not in the in the vehicles themselves but left questions around the longer term, uh, what happens um, in terms of you know, future powertrains, electrification, and so on. Um, it left me with the feeling that, that the future of this was really in the nylon industry's own hands and would be, the success or not, would really be dependent whether the nylon industry was prepared to step up to the challenge. So as a total wrap up, I mean, I, I think the, the the impression I came away with was the, the urgent need to keep on innovating and to bring new value into the nylon chain. It's a fairly old, fairly expensive product and without this constant kind of renewal and reinvestment, then it typically gets substituted by cheaper, usually inferior equivalents. I also come back to this thought of, of the industry really requiring to sell ideas and not bags of stuff. Um, it should be rather than focused on the kind of volumes and the kind of transactional notion of it, it should be looking much more at ways in which nylon can be used in innovative, higher value solutions. The main drivers of engineering plastics and film 
uh, packaging film that is for now on, uh, although we shouldn't turn our back on the fibre industries which remain a significant consumer of nylon products. Thank you.